Hey, Collaborist, I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholtz. And you're listening to Collabracast. How's it going, Jay? I'm doing well. How uh, welcome a back. Different look to you. What 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 happened to you? This is our first uh, kind of regular format podcast since AWP. Was there some kind of transformation that the West Coast brought? Yeah, I got West Coastified. So I was first in Seattle with you for almost a week, and then my brother and my sister in law came and got me, and I hung out in Portland for a week. Went over to the coast with my dear friend Stomper Monster. And absolutely, I destroyed my back hiking and couldn't really move all that well for a week when I should have been enjoying West Coast time in Oregon. And then I went home to Madison for a week. And then I then got on another plane. And I am in your neck of the woods. I am just down the road from you in the Santa Cruz Mountains at the Wellstone Center in the Redwoods, where I am doing a two-week writer's retreat. Excellent. It looks like a lovely place. Well, I'm referring to the background behind you. Of course, I've visited Wellstone a couple of times, and it is indeed an incredible place. Yeah, I want to put a link in the show notes for this episode to direct people to the Wellstone's website. Uh, I do fully encourage people, if they can come here, to come here to visit, to uh, do a writer's retreat. And in a perfect world, when Collaborist is a multi-trillion dollar operation, I just want to give people free scholarships to come to Wellstone whenever they they want to. We could have our our own Wellstone, our Collaborstone. Yeah. I guess if we had a couple trillion dollars lying around, we could probably get into the property owning business. Could be possibly. Oh, it depends on what the uh, market does here in California. You never, you never really know. You just don't. I'm uh, getting antsy. I just realized this because we got another comment, another feedback, morsel of feedback. I believe it's a singular of someone complaining about the chit chat. So. I'm trying to like make this like business and grind hustle culture, all of that stuff, like go to Wellstone, do your thing. But like, if, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're like, you've been away for a month, uh, we know that you're going to be chit chatting. I appreciate you because you get what this podcast is and is not. And that's great. Without further ado, I want to ask you, how's the weather? (laughs) I was going to say, it's a couple of old guys talking about the weather, and uh, I, you've got a better weather story than I do. So let's just cut right to your your weather story. Yeah. And we also, I will say that the comment that you're referring to was more than made up for by another comment that we got uh, with with some appreciation for your tornado chasing, your storm chasing. It was kind of like, hey, can I get more of that weather conversation? So that's... And, next, and I almost, I almost thanks, Wendy. I, I almost immediately went to YouTube uh, after I got here uh, last Monday, ten days ago, eleven days ago, um, because the first day that I was here, there was talk um, of tornadoes in the Santa Cruz Mountains, where I where I am, and there was. 
it, it seems like it's a fairly infrequent kind of unprecedented event and nothing actually showed up, but, um, or at least not that I know of, but I thought, wow, that would be really interesting if I went from the Midwest to the mountains and then that's where I experienced a tornado. But the other natural phenomenon, that's a singular, uh, that I've, that I've thought about wanting to experience in some way that we have talked about on previous episodes of the Calabracast. I got to experience my first earthquake. Yep. 4.7. I was at my writing desk. I was writing and I sensed some movement and I thought, oh, it must be really windy out right now. And I looked out my window and all of the trees were still. And then it dawned on me, hmm, maybe that was an earthquake. And I went into the main house and it was confirmed that I had experienced an earthquake. So now I can check that off, whatever weird bucket list that is. I can check it off, check off that from the weird bucket list. Oh, is that, is that foreshadowing? Um, so yeah, uh, that's been my recap. I am still dealing with a little bit of a sore back. I want to thank everyone for their patience. It's a little bit logistically challenging to record a podcast when I'm on the road a little bit more than when I'm at home. So sorry for the delay. I was only going to the store for cigarettes. I am back now and we can keep going on as podcaster and audience. And uh, actually I don't smoke. So that's not an endorsement of cigarettes. Uh, What are we getting into today? Well, we have a craft discussion. Okay. We are going to get into um before that though well the craft discussion is about it's a, it's an expansion on something that we've touched upon before we're going to go a little bit deeper into it okay um it's something that i have seen come up a couple of times in recently in client manuscripts so it just it feels like a a an alive topic for me these days in the editorial trenches um, and when we touched on it, we touched, we talked briefly, we touched on it briefly in a couple of episodes where we talked about trusting the reader, how much description is too much description, how much not enough. Uh, we both had a conversation yesterday about how we're becoming more minimal in our description as we age. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about Chekhov's rifle today. And for those of you who are not familiar with that term. Uh, we will define it. And for those of you who are, it, it's, we are going to expand upon that and kind of generalize that to some, some other concepts and other uh, what I would consider to be best practices, guidelines for, for writing. I don't think that's a very controversial statement. But before we get into that, I have a, a mini quiz here for you. I uh, was in procrastination mode last night, I hit kind of a awesome. sticky point in my novel and decided for some reason that I was going to go look up the day jobs of some famous writers. Okay. So I, like I, I have a brief, brief quiz here for you. I, I found this to be very entertaining and um, I've just been thinking about this. 
I want to establish within the rules, however, that uh, if I am allowed to suggest what someone's job was and it is different than the historical record, that as long as I do a good job of giving them a cool uh, workplace environment, I get one point for it either way. Sounds good to me. Fair All enough. Right, cool. All right. And the reason that I, I think that, that one of my fascinations with this particular topic, and I don't mean to make it sound like I'm going to like write a nonfiction book about this or something. I'm not, I'm not going like deep into this, but just thinking of these people as like somebody's coworker or, you know, somebody, well, I'll run through them. And then it's just, it's just, in, we think of, these are all writers who are major contributors to the literary canon, um, major, major authors who have either won prizes or sold millions and millions of books or both. And uh, they just were, they're just, just to some other, other people just knew them as like the, my coworker. Mm -hmm. The guy that's uh, that's always lingering by the water cooler, or you know, that's wild. Yeah. That's really wild to think about. All right, so we're going to start out with Mr. Stephen King. I think you might have heard of him. Yeah. Was I'm gonna oh, I'm going to give it's multiple choice. Oh, okay, cool. Feel free to add things in. Okay. Was Stephen King a sob salesman, a high school janitor, a mailman, an airline reservation clerk? or a fish thief? Hmm. I don't really particularly care for any of those answers. And my initial inclination was that he was a grave digger at a small cemetery on a coastal town in Massachusetts. And that uh, he also did part-time cashier work at the general store in that town. But if I were to guess, um, I'm going to go with janitor. I'm going to go with janitor. You are correct on both counts. He was indeed <laughs> a janitor, and spiritually, he absolutely was a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely digging grave sites, yeah, <laughs> for sure. The uh, sob salesman was Kurt Vonnegut. Okay. Mailman was William Faulkner. Airline reservation clerk was Harper Lee. And the fish thief was Jack London. Could you imagine buying a ticket to go to like Boise, Idaho? And then you look and you're like, oh, Harper, like Harper Lee. And then Harper Lee's like, yeah, like Harper Lee. And you're like, wait, you're actually Harper Lee and you're selling me a ticket to Boise? Wow. Yeah, exactly. Or you go to buy a sob and it's Kurt Vonnegut. So Billy Pilgrim's. Billy Pilgrim's selling you a sob. Yeah, that would, that would be awesome. Yeah. So next time you're at the car dealership, just think, you know, don't, don't just watch your preconceived notions. Like that might be Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. This man might be trying to scam you out of $3,000, but he might also write a noteworthy novel in the future. So just go with it. Question number two. All right. John Grisham. Well, I, I know that John Grisham, maybe he had another job, but I know that he's an attorney. Uh, this would be prior. Prior to being an attorney. Okay. Um, yes. So prior to that was. If there's anything that, if there's, if it ends up that there's any answer, I'm going to just pre-answer. If there's anything that comes up that has to do with horses, it's that answer. 
I'll read the responses. We'll see. Okay. Was John Grisham a cruise line activities director, an employee at a shoe polish factory, a salesman of dental products, a banker, or a plumber? I'm going to go with uh, shoe polish. The shoe polish factory employee was Charles Dickens. Okay. I believe that. John Grisham was a plumber. Yeah. That's the good. Was T.S. Eliot. The dental product salesman was Nicholas Sparks, famed romance novelist. Yeah. yeah. And the cruise line activities director was J.D. Salinger. Okay. So that actually is interesting because there's a Salinger story called Teddy in nine stories that's one of my favorite short stories and it's set on a cruise ship so maybe that's where that came from i also want to take a moment just to say that uh john grisham is in my limited experience with him which is beyond limited a good dude and that when we were uh when i was at tyrus books we published a short story collection set in the mississippi delta and John Grisham let us use one of his stories in that collection. And I think that, I believe at the time I was told that that was the only time he had let a small press use one of his stories in a short story collection. So no. good for John Grisham. For John, plus he can fix your pipes. Yeah. yeah. Another John, one of our collaborists favorites, John Steinbeck. Okay. Was he a barista? a construction worker, an asbestos factory co-owner, a bodyguard, or an exterminator? Oh, man. I really feel like I should know this one. And, like, initially, I my thought was that barista didn't exist in the John Steinbeck days. You like, had to go milk your own coffee plant. <laughs> uh, no half calf uh, soy <laughs> latte. Oh, yeah. Terrible yeah. macchiatos. Yeah. Do you want this scalding hot or just Sorry. regular hot? <laughs> uh, let's see. I'll go with Exterminator. The Exterminator was William S. Burroughs. Oh, for sure. Naked Lunch. Could, yeah, very well inform some of <laughs> which explains yeah. a lot. Yes. Um, Steinbeck was a construction worker. Okay, I believe that. The uh, barista was Margaret Atwood. Okay. Franz Kafka was the co-owner of an asbestos factory, which may okay. also explain some things. May really, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Douglas Adams, author of The Hitchhiker's Guide, was the uh, bodyguard. So there you go. All right. I uh, just really am glad that I got the Stephen King one right. <laughs> And the rest of them, not so much. But yeah, I, I like this. I think I'm going to prepare a quiz. I'm going to surround the internet for some 10 facts you wouldn't believe about these best-selling authors. And I will repay in kind the quiz sure. in the next episode. We're just getting, just leaning into the NPR vibe, leaning into the wait, yeah. wait, don't tell me zone. Yeah. Can I get somebody's uh, voice on my answering machine as a prize if I if I get most of them right? You can get me doing a poor imitation of Garrison Keillor leaving a message, an outgoing message on your phone. 
Eh, not sure that it's just Loon Lake. <laughs> Wait, that's Loon Lake was a mystery series that I published. Um, Lake Wobegon. That was that was it. Different lake. Yeah. All right. Chekhov's rifle. Go ahead. What is it? Uh, it is the device, generally speaking, that when we see someone early on in the book pop in with something and they draw attention to it. In this case, it's Chekhov's rifle, but it could be anything. We know, or the reader has expectations, or the reader has the thrill of saying, oh, I bet you that's going to come in to be relevant later in this plot. It's going to be a big part of this. So like, I'm paying attention. I saw you bring this in. Even if you set it down on the table, in this case, the rifle, and there's just every now and then a character's like, yeah, I could catch the gleam on the rifle. Like just every now and then having the attention on the rifle, you know that at some point that rifle is going to get picked up and somebody's going to get shot with the rifle. Right. So it comes from his playwriting days. And in, in, in for him, it was in, in Act One, Anton Chekhov, of course, being the famous Russian short story writer and playwright. Um, in Act One, if you've got, You've got your, your stage, your scene, if there is a rifle above the fireplace hanging where rifles do and sometimes and in some places, then you introduce the rifle in act one, it's gotta go off in act three. So unpacking and kind of reverse engineering that it isn't, and, and as you said, you know, it doesn't have to be a rifle. I have the, tremendous honor of of having been asked to officiate a wedding this saturday in a couple days awesome yeah so i'm it's a, a my very good friends jonathan and maggie jonathan i've known for since he was a an undergrad and maggie is his fiance congratulations to them both yes indeed um so i've been writing my address to the the assembly and uh i have you know, I'm, it's not it's not long, it's maybe a page and a half, but I'm I'm including a Chekhov's left-handed math teacher in mm. near the the beginning of the the piece, and then which will of course mean something later. Um, but I think that's the real point is is that connection, and and I bring this up because in a a couple of places lately I've seen lots of attention paid to lots of details that don't really matter, that don't have any bearing on the plot, that don't have any bearing on the character or character arcs, that don't even really resonate with what is happening in the scene on a tonal level. For instance, if you're describing, if you're writing, say, Detective Noir, and you're in 1940s Los Angeles, Perhaps the neon sign that's blinking and half broken isn't a plot device, but it might be very indicative of the feel of the scene. You pick out sure. details that you really want to. It's, it's an intentional process. It should, it should be a very intentional process because with any, anything you point the reader's attention to at any moment, you talked about the gleam on the rifle. When you're, when you're writing a scene, you have, there's an infinity of details that you can 
point the reader to that you can you're in control of the reader's attention in that moment literally there is an infinite amount of detail you could create and put into any scene if you were so determined to do so right any any given even just within the the context of a kitchen there could be any of a number of colors textures appliances lack of appliances sounds smells etc what you when you, when you write a sentence when you create an image when you ask the reader to pay attention to an element of that you are doing that at the expense of every other possibility that exists there's an opportunity cost to to choosing to use those words on that detail so make it count give make sure you have a reason i think that and I used to do a lot of this myself. I think that this is, you know, kind of early, early writers who are in the beginning of learning their craft will often visualize a particular scene and they get it really in their heads and they see exactly how it is and they want to use their descriptive powers to impart that to the reader. But how much of that does the reader actually need to receive? How much of that actually needs to be conveyed? Just because you, as the author, very clearly see a scene, think about what the the essence of that scene is. What are the critical details in that scene that the reader has to know? And I'm not saying that everybody should be writing sparse, you know, un, unvarnished fiction. I There are authors I love who are descriptive who, who we've gone over the Steinbeck beginning to East of Eden, how he's setting the landscape and all of, all of those things, like very descriptive. It goes in and it creates a very vivid picture and it's because of the level of detail. Yes, but it's very, it's very intentional. And it yes. isn't, and he does that in the beginning when he's not asking you to attend to some type of, character development or some type of action, some type of unfolding drama. Um, so it's, it's, I, I would just love to, to share the message of, of the importance of making a very conscientious choice about those details that, that you are sharing so that you don't get lost in your own imagination, in your own ability to visualize. Right. And I think that one of the important ways of looking at that is um, I know from personal experience that it can be a way to procrastinate, to find detail. You're, you're unsure of what the next real scene in the book is. And so either trying to trick yourself into the idea of like, well, I'm still writing, I'm still writing because I'm describing the color of the wall and the chip in it. Um, and it may be that just keeping in motion and keeping creating, you actually are stimulating your brain in such a way that it's going to help get you to the next spot. But then that, that section that you just wrote may need to be deleted. Like it served its purpose in, in getting you mentally ready to go on with the scene and the forward propulsion of the book. But it's not really for the reader. And the reader's going to say, you're slowing down this journey. You're checking to make sure that you turned off the oven for the third time before we even get out of the driveway on our vacation. Stop doing that. 
In fact, the scenario that you just described was exactly what happened to me last night, which caused the the brief bout of frustration that led me to go and research famous writers in their day jobs. I was writing this scene and I and there was a, a little bit of a mini flashback in it. And I got I went into a rabbit hole that was within a rabbit hole. And I know that your process is is deliberately full of yeah. is absolutely is convoluted Warren that there ever was. <laughs> but in in this case, I I took a couple of took a couple of extra turns. I went a little, a little too far into that neighborhood. And so then I, I took a step back and I was like, oh, these last few sentences are all completely irrelevant. And I, they were for your benefit, but not for the readers. They were not even for, yeah, <laughs> the generously speaking. I think it was more just like, I'm still writing. I'm putting words yeah. on the page. <laughs> yeah. Look at me. I'm being a clever boy. Look at this. I'm writing, I'm writing. And then no. Yeah. And, and you can even in the moment, you may think, oh, this is a really good sentence and this is really great. And then you go back and read it and you see how disjointed it is compared to what you had already written. It's just like, yes, you wrote a sentence, but it is not connected to any port on either side of it. And that too is exactly what happened. It's kind of eerie that you're just you're <laughs> in town and you're like describing my writing night. And then you went and got some orange juice, I think. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I wrote this. I was like, God, that's a... <laughs> fantastic sentence and then i i read the passage like oh that has nothing to do with anything like nobody cares so i i tend to find that when i open up a document the next morning after i finished you know and i've gone to sleep i wake up the next morning and look at the last things that i wrote there'll be a lot of things where i like oh i bet i thought i was really clever when i said that but it has nothing to do with this book and That's then you then you here, i'll just <laughs> I'll just throw this out because I'm sure that I'm not the only one. Then everyone's got that document where they've got like, this sentence is so golden. I can't throw it away. I'm going to use it somewhere else. And so then you add those last sentences to that document. That's exactly. And you start the process all over. Yeah, that's, that's exactly where that sentence went. My document yep. is called the cutting room floor. Yep. We all um, have a cutting room floor. Yeah. So I don't know. Is there anything else to say about about Chekhov's left-handed math teacher, Chekhov's toaster? Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's really instructive. Uh, Cuddy and I watch a lot of Lifetime movies, and I don't know how familiar people are with the with the Lifetime movie genre, but no one is trying to win an award by like Academy Award. Um, standards but they're entertaining you get engrossed in it but it has become a game where somebody like calls an unnatural amount of attention to something and then it's like like point at the screen and be like that's that's Chekhov's toaster that's and, and you know it will be so obvious someone be like well I just went to the second hand store and I bought this toaster and it's got a fraying wire but I'm gonna plug it in and make sure that I tell everyone don't touch this toaster because it's probably deadly and it'll probably electrocute you but I'm just gonna leave it here on the counter and I'm like oh okay so that's what that is the balance of figuring out did you say enough to make sure that the reader is aware or that the reader can fairly be asked to be aware. They may not be aware, but you can at least point to it and say, look, I was playing fair. Did, did your due diligence? Yeah. So it's like, 
it's there, but it's not there. Like that's the distinction. Like that's the middle area that you're, you're aiming for. And I am definitely, I have a very light touch. I try to do it as, as quickly and deftly as I can of here is something that's going to be important, but right now we're not looking at it and we're over here, but I did tell you that this is here, but we're over here now. And that's, that's my goal. And there, you know, like you mentioned, I am a rabbit hole jumper and I am also a rabbit hole lever in the, in what I'm working on. So there are plenty of times where clues are present, but I never call attention to them again, or even very loudly, but they're there. And so figuring out who you are writing for, who your audience is and what their expectations are as far as how much help you're going to give them on figuring out what's going to happen. That's an important part of the equation. But I would say putting something in so that it's rightfully there without calling a lot of attention to it is the goal. I would agree. I think heavy-handed foreshadowing is not not fun either. Yeah. If that, if that it's like, boy, I sure hope nobody gets shot with that rifle later. In this, you know, it's it, yeah. You you want to maintain the the element of surprise. It's it's yeah. It's having. I think I like the having the light touch and just creating threads that kind of run throughout. And if people pick them up then great. And if they don't, then that's okay. Also, yep. as long as you can... people will be able to trace things back when, when the coaster yeah. happens, be, Oh yeah, that. Yep. And that's, that's a desirable outcome is that you can elicit that response in a reader. It is. That's a nice feeling as a reader when you get to that and you're able to kind of retro retroactively see how some things were laid out and some, subplots some of the engineering and structure beneath it all yeah all right well do we have anything left for this episode i think that'll do it all right well i want to thank uh, a lot of people uh, including jason buckholtz i want to thank and say hello to everybody that stopped and talked to us at awp that was a really great and invigorating experience to be around so many engaged and dialed in people around words and communication and story. It's so critical to why we started Collaborist and it's the exact community that I love being around. I want to thank uh, my brother and my sister-in-law for their hospitality, Stomper Monster, Wolf, um, I want to also thank Steve and Sarah and family here at the Wellstone and all of the writers who I have been around and whose brilliance and genius I have had the good fortune of uh, absorbing. So that's Bronwyn and Joe and Abby and Aurora. And it's just been a really good time. So thank you, Collaborists, for being out in the world. And if this podcast is ever even slightly valuable or you like the chit chat, please feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're there and you feel inclined, leave a rating or a review or don't, whatever. Or story. Or community. Collaborquake or something. Oh, wait, Jason's got the button. Jason's got the button.